about to listen to another speaker, another wonderful speaker that I introduced earlier, Fiona Armstrong. Fiona's going to talk about updates in climate change and opportunities for nurse and midwifery advocacy and participation. Thank you so much, Fiona. very much um, for having me. Just to give you a little bit of introduction to who I am, I'm, my background is as a registered nurse. I'm still a registered nurse. I work in the area of climate and health policy. It's not necessarily a widely recognised area of nursing practice, but for me it's a, it's a, it's a genuinely important um, area of nursing practice. And, um, and I hope that in coming years and decades that we'll see a lot more people um, who are nurses working in that space as well. Um, I'm also a journalist and, um, and I used to work for the Australian Nursing Federation before it was ANMF um, in the professional um, and policy team at the federal office. So I've had the opportunity to be involved with, with your organisation for a long time and, um, and I'm, it's a very proud association too. Um, I'm, and then after I left that role I did a Masters in Politics and Public Policy. I was involved in health reform advocacy for a long time. And um, we had a lot of success in that area, and I felt that health reform at that time was on a pathway to that, um, that looked um, assured. Um, and so I, I left my job to do a master's in politics and public policy to focus on climate policy options for Australia. And that led me to the work that I now do with the Climate and Health Alliance. So today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about climate change and health, um, but I've also been asked to screen a film that we made last year with our member and partner, the Public Health Association of Australia, uh, called The Human Cost of Power, which is about coal and gas and health. So my presentation is going to be a little bit of a kind of a, a backgrounder to why, what might motivate us to make a film like that, a little bit about climate change and health, and a bit about energy and health, and, um, and where we're at um, in Australia in responding to that. So just very quickly, what's the imperative for acting on climate change? Um, we can look to what we know about climate change now and the carbon intensive economy. Um, I, this slide is about a report I think is very important called the DARA Climate Vulnerability Monitor, which comes out every couple of years. It first came out in 2012. It aggregates data from organisations uh, like the World Bank, but aid organisations around the world to look at what the impacts of climate change are right now. I'm going to share with you, I'm, I'm not going to use a lot of numbers in my presentation, but there are some important numbers associated with this particular report. Um, what it finds is that climate change is causing 400,000 deaths each year. That's now. Um, that was in 2010. Um, what it also finds is that our global carbon intensive economy is also responsible for an additional 4.5 million deaths each year from things like air pollution and cancer. So as well as driving climate change, those, they, um, our, our carbon intensive economy is, has direct and immediate health impacts. Those 400,000 deaths each year are attributable mainly due to hunger and communicable diseases, and they mainly affect children in developing countries, children who haven't had the opportunity to even create any emissions themselves are, um, are being affected by climate change and the diseases that, that, it, um, that it encourages. They over, children overwhelmingly bear the burden, the health burden from climate change, and those adverse conditions, as you know, in childhood set up a, a, a lifetime 
time of, of, of health inequities. Um, there are serious economic consequences associated with climate change and um, this report has another very big number. Um, it estimates that climate change cost the global economy $1.2 trillion in 2010. So when we say we can't afford to take action on climate change, actually we can't afford not to take action on climate change. That's about 1.6% of world GDP. Um, but the report predicts that those costs will increase and accelerate throughout the century. It also makes the very important point that action on climate change will cost less than not taking action. Um, so this slide uh, is from the Climate Commission. There's a few little arrows on here. It, um, it summarises a study that I'll tell you a little bit about it in the moment, but um, it shows you what our trajectory is without effective climate change. I'm just going to talk a little bit more about um, what the, the, um, the warming means in terms of health. We, we're, we're already at one degree of global warming above pre-industrial temperatures. Um, one degree of warming is not safe for human health. For people in Australia with chronic illnesses such as heart disease, diabetes, multiple sclerosis, um, people who are overweight, people who work outdoors, um, those who are working in hot environments, the elderly and infants, people who are taking mental illness um, or taking illicit drugs, one degree can be disastrous for human health. This graph shows us the predicted pathway for global warming, um, which is predicted to reach between four and seven degrees above pre-industrial global averages this century without effective action on climate change. As the average temperature rises, and I'm um, quoting Tony McMichael here, who some of you may be familiar with. He's certainly another big hero of mine. He's the guru on climate change and health and a leading Australian and international researcher on the topic. As the average temperature rises, Tony says, there will be increasing impacts from climate on health. Assorted diseases, disorders, distress and deaths will occur at much higher rates. At the four degrees end of the spectrum, he writes in a book that's just been published this year, and warming will not end there. We will be moving further into the unknown with potentially very damaging changes in social and environmental conditions. So we don't want to go there. And this, um, this slide, Leslie Hughes, who's a commissioner, um, was a commissioner at the Climate Commission before it was abolished late last year, but has transformed into the Climate Council. Um, this just shows her lifetime, her kids' lifetime, and her grandchildren's lifetime. So there are children alive today who will experience that level of warming if we're not able to mitigate. So this is not, um, not something that's in the future that's, that's distant from us. We've already experienced a taste of what the warming world looks like. This um, last year, in 2013, the Bureau of Meteorology was forced to develop a new weather forecasting chart because the heat extremes went beyond those that had previously been forecast. So they added deep purple and pink to the scale to show where um, it had previously been capped at, at 50 degrees Celsius. So it was never anticipated that we would have temperatures that would go above that. But um, there were forecasts for temperatures above that across Australia. And I think we had, um, I forget what the, the average temperature was during January of 2013, but it was certainly a record maximum temperature right across Australia. 
So those heat waves we understand are very, um, have serious impacts on human health and we're experiencing them ourselves. Um, the air pollution that, it, that also increases from burning fossil fuels and, um, and as Barbara talked about before, ozone, which um, ground level ozone, which occurs in the presence of sunshine and volatile organic compounds that are, uh, are produced when we burn fossil fuels for um, energy and transport, lead to a very um, toxic smog, which is a, a sort of like sunburn on your lungs. And, um, and that's one of the associated kind of health consequences around climate change. It affects yeah, the lungs of healthy young people as well, but obviously people who are vulnerable um, are, are more seriously affected. But then, you know, we've experienced the last couple of years flooding and bushfires which cause injuries and deaths um, and also lead to ongoing health consequences. Um, flooding, you know, there's the, the spores that develop in, um, in damp homes that cause respiratory illness. There's um, the loss of homes and possessions and livelihood that are so devastating and, um, and in some cases that psychological distress can lead to um, conflict and violence and certainly we've seen that in Victoria after the 2009 bushfires on Black Saturday. There's a lot of fracturing of communities and an increase in domestic violence and people who are, are trying to recover from that. So that's the hard, bad news. Um, and, but as Barbara said, I want to talk about what are we for and what's possible because there's an awful lot that is possible. And um, this uh, slide points to a report that we produced with the Climate Institute in 2012 called Our Uncashed Dividend, and it talks about what's possible from strategies to reduce emissions in terms of their benefits to health. And the good news is, is that there is a very good news story associated with that. In implementing strategies to reduce emissions in the energy sector, we can reduce air pollution. Um, and doing the same in, in the transport sector, and again, Barbara referred to this before, moving to public and more active forms of transport, um, investing in, in transport systems that allow people to get out of their car and be more active. There are huge opportunities there for reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, reducing air pollution that cause respiratory illness, but in becoming more active, um, reduce the risks of the chronic lifestyle diseases, diabetes, obesity, um, depression, cancer, and, um, and in constructing our, our social environments to, um, to facilitate that activity, we also improve our um, opportunity for social interaction and we build community cohesiveness. Um, you know, the incidental benefits are improving local security and, um, and, and, and contributing to improved mental health as well. Um, I had the pleasure of hearing um, Mark Butler, um, who is, is, is now in the opposition, um, was, what was he, Parliamentary Secretary for Climate Change, talking very favourably about this report at the meeting of the Victorian nurses that we were at last week. I thought it's a pity he didn't talk about it in government, but, um, but it does, does show you that it is a compelling story um, that politicians and policy makers can understand. And it's a much easier conversation to have rather than saying, well, let's respond to climate change because of the risks. And that's an important conversation, but it's also important to, um, to, to couple that with a conversation about what's possible. And, um, and, and the great thing for us in the health professions is that there's an incredibly positive story that 
to tell about what's possible for health that can also reduce the impact on our health budgets. Um, billions of dollars a year are available in avoided ill health and productivity gains from implementing strategies like this. It's a win-win-win. We win on emissions, we win for health, we win on, on our budgets as well and we can use that to um, you know, spend it where we like, but we might invest it in more health services. We might also choose to invest it in um, in renewable energy to help um, help reduce our emissions even further, and create that um, that cycle that we are starting to see um, globally in terms of an investment in renewables. The the, the prices are plummeting, um, and it's ma it's much more accessible for people than it was. So you know this 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 message around the health benefits of climate action, I think hasn't um, certainly hasn't pervaded policy making here in Australia, but it is increasingly understood worldwide, and um, and and the health professions and um, our medical journals are recognising this, saying that moving to um, a low carbon economy, low carbon societies could be the best, you know, a big one of our biggest public health advances. Um, just to set the scene a little bit about where we are, I want to share with you this incredibly important um, paper, I think, that was published in 2009, which um, evaluated how much carbon we can afford to burn to stay on our two degree target. So the world has agreed at Copenhagen that we want to avoid global warming of beyond two degrees. Beyond that, scientists say we may move into non-linear changes in which cat global warming becomes irreversible and, and may have catastrophic effects. So there's obviously a very um, compelling reason to try and limit our warming, to cap our emissions and begin to decline. But how much can we afford to burn? How much carbon can we afford to emit? This was the first time that anybody had actually um, calculated that. So it's an incredibly useful paper, Multi Meenhausen, who was then at the Potsdam Institute for um, Climate Research in Germany and is now at the University of Melbourne, so contributing to, um, to climate science here in Australia, um, estimated that, um, well, the modelling that, um, that they undertook showed that in order to have a 50-50 chance of avoiding going beyond two degrees, that we could afford to emit no more than 1.5 thousand trillion tonnes of CO2. So they're, they're, they're big numbers, um, but they're important numbers because they, they, they give us a, a clear understanding of what our budget is. 50-50 is not that good, so they calculated what it would take in order to have an 80% chance of avoiding two degrees. We can emit just 886 gigatons. The researchers at the Carbon Tracker Initiative um, in their study about unburnable carbon reveal that we've already burned a third of that. So that's what we, the 886 that Meinhausen et al estimated was what we could burn between 2000 and 2050. However, by the end of the first decade of this century, we'd already used a third. So we're gobbling it up pretty fast, which means that we need to, to make those, um, those declines extremely quickly. What this report also shows is that the, the reserves that are already on the books of the, the top 100 coal, oil and gas companies in the world represent 745 gigatons of CO2. That's reserves that are already known. That's um, out of our possible 886. 
So what does that mean for the world? Well, basically what it means is that most of the world's fossil fuel reserves that are listed on company books cannot ever be burned. That's where the word unburnable carbon comes from. And, um, and what this report refers to is that that makes that, those assets wasted capital and they are stranded assets because their value can never be realised if we are to avoid two degrees. And I think we're starting to see the, the, the shockwaves that are going through the, the um, global financial economy as that's beginning to be realised. We've got governments like Norway who are taking their investments out of fossil fuels because they say they're risky. So we're moving into a different conversation about the, um, that the harms from climate change, that investment in fossil fuel is actually a really bad economic choice. And I think that's, that's a, it's a powerful argument and it's making a difference. Excuse me, I just need a mouthful of water. So what is, what's the response been in Australia? Well, like I said before, um, the, 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 <clears throat> the new government has been quick to act on some of the um, climate initiatives that were instigated by the previous government. We've seen the abolition of the Climate Commission. We have a commitment to roll back the carbon tax, which is, act, which is not actually a tax, it's a, a fixed price leading to a, a, a trading scheme. Um, that, that carbon price mechanism, whilst most of us who are in the advocacy business would argue has, is, is wildly inadequate, has actually led to a levelling off of our electricity consumption in Australia and, um, and a decline in our emissions. So were we to keep that, we might see that we were beginning to peak and decline our emissions, even though the conversation in Australia, if you if you listen to the sort of popular press is that it's all too hard. Um, actually, it was making a difference already. So it would be a very backward step if we were to, um, to, to um, abolish the carbon price. It would also, I mean, there's beginning to be a conversation and certainly this was the conversation in Warsaw last year at the UN climate negotiations, that that's a, a very unsound foreign policy decision um, on Australia's behalf. It doesn't, doesn't cast us in a very good light. Um, other governments and countries are astonished that a country that would implement a carbon price legislation at this point in our history would consider removing it, particularly when it, um, it's beginning to work. So it's inevitable that we will have one again, but it's, it's um, unfortunate that we're going through this period where we might remove it, although you know, I think it might be very difficult to remove and it may be that it transforms into something else. But Essentially, the current climate policies and energy policies that we have in Australia are not putting us on a path to two degrees. Um, current energy policy prioritises and privileges fossil fuels. We spend about $12 billion a year providing subsidies to those industries, subsidies to an industry that is causing harm on a global level and causing harm at a local level. That doesn't make any sense. We should be using those subsidies to invest in renewable energy resources that are healthier, safer, cleaner, and will help our transition to a low carbon economy, and which we have an abundance of in Australia. We're extraordinarily fortunate in Australia in that our transition to a low carbon economy is assured because we have access to an extraordinary abundance of renewable energy resources. We just need to make a decision as a community to invest in them. 
Um, the direct action plan, which is supposed to replace the carbon price as a climate policy, I don't think anybody um, who works in climate policy really considers that a serious initiative. Um, there's very little detail about it um, in terms of what it will accomplish. And most analysis suggests that it won't um, go any way towards achieving even our wildly inadequate emissions reduction target of 5% by 2020. So it seems like we're taking a huge gamble in Australia. We haven't really got a good global agreement. Um, we haven't got much of a national policy. And thanks to the efforts of climate deniers and the fossil fuel companies, and um, I have to say gutless politicians, um, it's been hard to get support for action on climate change. The community are confused about what's possible. Um, so I think I'm, I want to talk about energy policy now, and I think that um, that it provides an opportunity to focus on an issue that people do understand as having local and direct help, direct impacts. I mean, there's there's one one focus is the issue about how it drives global emissions, but the, um, the, the local and immediate risks to health are a way of having that conversation um, and a way of getting community and policymakers' attention. We've been having that conversation at the Climate and Health Alliance. I didn't really talk much about what we are, but you, uh, as um, New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association, are part of the Climate and Health Alliance because the ANF National Office is a member. We're an alliance of, of, of health sector organisations together who work together um, in taking a collective advocacy position about climate change and on environmental health and also about greening the sector. Um, we've been shifting our attention to having the conversation about energy policy, you know, what's driving climate change. Let's look at some of the root causes of it and, um, and, and, and talk about what the health implications of that are and what the contribution can be of the health sector. So there's serious effects to, um, to health from burning fossil fuels both from from coal and, and um, increasingly we are becoming aware from coal seam gas and you heard a lot about that from Barbara this morning. The exploitation of the resources that we have in Australia has the potential to drive us beyond two degrees. Um, therefore, you know, like those stranded assets that were referred to in that report, we, um, we can't afford to burn them. And there's a couple of useful reports there from Greenpeace that I encourage you to have a look at that quantify exactly what um, contribution to global warming those, um, the, the, the proposed mine, new mines and mine expansions are in Australia. I'm going to screen a film, uh, The Human Cost of Power, shortly, which talks about those a little bit more. This is a paper um, referred to in Business Insider that came out in the Medical Journal of Australia last week, which is a very useful one in supporting arguments around coal seam gas, um, suggesting that the climate damage from coal seam gas, from the emissions of methane, the health effects associated with the polluted air, water and soil, and the community disruption that's associated with that industry, all suggest that the benefits of, that are being um, portrayed of, of unconventional gas as being a, a key player in Australia's energy future are misplaced. 
So as part of that conversation that Barbara suggests in talking about what's possible, um, it's important to understand where we can go. This is a 2009 study that made the cover of Scientific American um, by Mark DeLucci and, and Mark Jacobson from Stanford University who analysed the feasibility of getting all of our energy worldwide from renewable sources. Um, it's possible. It can also be achieved in a relatively short time frame. In 2009, they said that we could move to 100% renewable energy for the world by 2030. Um, it's, it's, um, the barriers to doing that are not technical, um, and nor are they economic, but they're social and political. So we have the opportunity to make those choices. Um, more recent research suggests that energy costs would decline in a 100% renewable scenario. So in contrast to the argument that we're hearing about um, renewable energy in Australia, that it's driving up your electricity bills, it's not actually the case. Um, and the, most of the, the increases in electricity pricing in Australia are coming from maintaining outdated infrastructure and poles and wires and also um, you know, price gouging from the energy retailers. So um, renewable energy is, is helping to reduce energy costs and in the long term it will, it will lead to a decline in electricity costs. Like I said before, the opportunities for renewable energy in Australia are enormous and those of you who've got solar on your roof, like the, the million plus people who have chosen to, um, to not wait for, for government policy, although because there's been a very untidy kind of policy environment for domestic solar in Australia that's bounced all over the place, but um, even though that's been difficult to follow and hard to understand and hasn't always provided a financial incentive, people are recognising that they can take control of their own energy production and installing solar on their roof is not only a way that they can make a contribution to um, improving environmental health, but it's a way of controlling their own energy costs. And that group of people, that million plus people, now constitute a powerful political force in Australia. So when the West Australian government wanted to remove the solar subsidy recently, the bombardment that they got from that community of people who were saying, hang on, you know, we, we don't want you to do that, um, that matters and it made a difference and they changed their mind very quickly. So it's just some balloons showing you the growth in, um, in solar in Australia. So what can the health sector and civil society organisations like unions and nurses and midwives do? Well, Gary Cohen, who's from Healthcare Without Harm, um, which is uh, the international partner of the Climate and Health Alliance, um, says a lot. Um, he believes that healthcare can lead the global low-carbon transition. Um, and one of the ways that they're helping to do that is establishing the Global Green and Healthy Hospitals Network, which is a global network of hospitals and healthcare providers and health organisations, um, because professional and industrial organisations can be part of it as well, um, working together to accelerate the transition away from fossil fuels and environmental harm in healthcare. Um, the, the healthcare industry is, is a big industry, it's a big proportion of national GDP and, um, and, and to get that sector working together can have, an, um, can have a huge impact on the choices that manufacturers are making. Um, if the healthcare sector was to choose to invest in renewable energy, that would, that would make a big difference. So there's not only a necessary transformation in healthcare, it, um, 
it's possible to make that transformation by working together and it's made particularly possible by global networks but it's driven by people like you who are who are here on the ground this um, this image on the right is the um, cover of global green and healthy hospitals agenda which is a program that's been developed by healthcare without harm and it's creating a global network of people who are working towards sustainability um, it had a soft launch a couple of years ago there's a few hospitals here in Australia who are involved um, can't think of any in New South Wales yet but um, but hopefully that's only a matter of time because it's certainly our commitment to working towards encouraging hospitals in Australia and if any of you are working in hospitals that you would like to hear more about how you can participate in this global network I'd be very pleased to have a a personal conversation with you about that and talk to you about how you can introduce this to your hospital um, because what it offers is and um, we've just finished piloting an amazing online platform that if you join Global Green and Healthy Hospitals Network and it's free for hospitals and healthcare institutions to join it gives you access to a massive amount of resources that help you on your sustainability journey whether you've already begun or you're looking to start and it, um, it has a custom-built platform which has been produced by Cisco who are a leading international um, uh, ICT information communications technology provider deliberately built for this for the healthcare community to talk together about sustainable healthcare so you can log on to that it's a bit like sort of a mixture of Facebook and go to meeting you can join communities of people who are working on similar goals you can ask questions there's a network of experts there that you can ask how to go about things there's lots of resources that you can access you can share your progress and through sharing your progress our progress through that global network it's a it's an opportunity to really accelerate um, your our collective pathway to um, to sustainable health care and to stop people having to reinvent the wheel um, over and over again um, it's important just quickly to um, to make you aware of this study another um, investment in um, raising awareness about health effects of fossil fuels from healthcare without harm so I encourage you to use the evidence that's being developed to support these arguments this produced um, by the University of Illinois in Chicago and the healthcare research collaborative that they're part of with healthcare without harm um, so I just want to talk to you, introduce you to quickly some of the campaigns that are happening around the world that are using the arguments around health and fossil fuels to build support for action on climate change and to phase out fossil fuels. This is images from a still that was produced for a campaign in Europe called Cough for Coal. The lungs, the big giant inflatable lungs that you see there in front of a coal-fired power station were produced by the artist activist Arta van Baalen who developed the lungs after he was talking to my colleague um, Julia Huscher from um, the Health and Environment Alliance in Europe when she said that talking about the direct health impacts of coal was a powerful way of connecting people with the issue of climate change in, in a way that's more personally relevant to them than as a global environmental issue. So those, um, those lungs travel all over Europe and um, they're raising funds to produce some more. I think it would be good to have some here. 
This is another report that was produced by the Health and Environment Alliance in Europe showing the cost to coal in the EU of 42.8 billion euros each year and causing 18,000 deaths, 8,000 and a half new cases of chronic bronchitis, but 4 million lost working days each year. We won't have those, um, that, that ill health and productivity from wide-scale investment in wind and solar. It doesn't carry the same health impacts. This is a, um, a campaign which has been produced by a group of civil society organisations in, um, in Kosovo um, and is, another, is it just an example of using the health message to talk about the this topic. The World Bank says that in 2010, air pollution caused 835 premature deaths, 11,600 emergency visits to the hospital and cost close to 100 million euros in medical bills. So why are we planning to build yet another pollution source, the Lignite Fire Tower Plant? Support a clean energy future, for our children's sake. Um, this is another example of a campaign, and this is um, to, you know, to begin the conversation with you about what can nurses do. This is a very successful campaign from Ontario in Canada, um, who've been campaigning to phase out coal for a very long time. But it was really when um, organisations and, and professions like nurses and doctors got involved that it, it started to get some traction. And the contribution um, of the Royal um, Nurses Association in Ontario and the equivalent of our Doctors for the Environment, the Canadian Associations for Physicians for the Environment, and they joined together um, in this campaign saying doctors and nurses want clean energy and phase out coal um, was when they really began to achieve some successes. And this, um, this campaign's a couple of years old now, but they have just decommissioned their last coal-fired power station in Ontario. So I think it's a good example of, of the power of that story, but also the, um, the power of, of your voice as respected and trusted health professionals. People listen when doctors and nurses and midwives say something. Oh, I wanted to um, also share with you, a colleague sent me an email this morning saying that nurses are at a, a, a press conference right now with um, Senator Barbara Boxer about the harmful health implications from the proposed Keystone pipeline that will bring oil from Canada to the US for processing. So um, that we've, we've got some good examples of our colleagues around the world who are starting to participate in advocacy on this issue. Um, and this is another quick little clip from the Sierra Club in the US featuring Nurse Julie in a campaign against coal exports. Um, very similar situation to what we're experiencing here in terms of a massive, massive expansion in coal exports from Australia that um, we could probably really use the voices of... When the call comes, emergency responders have to be ready. A new plan by out-of-state coal companies would make this harder. 60 new mile-long coal trains could go through our town each day, cutting off traffic in some areas for up to 15 minutes. In an emergency, seconds can mean life or death. When local families need our help most, rescue can't wait. Coal trains will delay emergency responders, and that's not safe. Visit PowerPassCoal.org to protect our community. So that, that's an, an interesting spin on the argument, really. I mean, there's lots of health arguments associated with that, including the air pollution. 
Um, so just quickly, I want to acknowledge the efforts of New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association already. Um, I mentioned some of the work that we've been doing around energy policy. Uh, this is a joint statement that came from a round table that we held last year with health leaders talking about the health implications of energy policy. We were fortunate to have federal bureaucrats from the Department of Energy um, who were there, who were um, quite unaware that the, of the implications of the, of the energy industry for health. That was complete news for them. Um, so this is a joint statement that came out from, um, from that meeting. Um, it certainly got some media attention that health organisations made um, the front page of at least one newspaper saying, you know, health groups take on minors. That wasn't really what we were talking about, but um, it's just an illustration, I think, that there's, it, it's a powerful example of how we can get people's attention as health groups when we take a stand on this issue. And I certainly commend um, New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association for that. And also, um, we do have a joint position paper uh, coming out on health and energy choices uh, later this year that we hope that, um, or certainly ANF Federal Office has endorsement, hope that your branch can as well. But I think what that provides, thank you, um, is an opportunity to, um, to talk about what else might be possible in terms of bringing the health voice to this issue. I think a campaign featuring nurses and midwives um, calling for clean renewable energy could be a very powerful message and one that would resonate with communities and get the attention of, of media and politicians, but also demonstrate the capacity for civil society leadership that exists within the health professions. And I think um, at a time where it's easy to feel demoralised about the lack of political leadership, it's important to remember what we can accomplish as civil society. Um, and I, 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 I sometimes think rather than... Um, well, in addition to pressuring our politicians to doing things, we need to think about what we can do without and despite them. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot that we can accomplish.